had finished, I'm in St. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, or Capernaum. Now a, a centurion, the King James Version says, a certain centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. How many of you have just, at times, just been sick and just said, Lord, please heal me. Please touch my body. <laughs> Lord, I'm in pain. Oh, man, when I was going through that sinusitis, I was just saying, Lord, please, just any relief. I mean, when you have a severe migraine-type headache, it doesn't matter what else in your body is working. My legs were great. I probably could have ran a marathon. You know, my, my, my stamina was good. I could have, you know, walked 10 miles. Uh, I was feeling good in terms of my, my vision, my hearing, my smell, my sight. I still had an appetite. But I tell you, when, when your head is just in excruciating pain, it doesn't matter. You're just out for the count. Amen. And, and I could just imagine this servant. You know, I showed you guys a few weeks ago the video, a possibility rendering, uh, a portrayal of what might have been happening with this servant who was dying of paralysis, which I didn't even think that you could necessarily die of, but obviously you can. The Bible says he was at the point of death. And a paralysis, I understand also, you guys have schooled me on this, it can be very painful. If you recall, if you recall, there was a man that was had paralysis that was on a stretcher. And these four guys who were nameless tore up Peter's roof, just cut a hole in his roof. You know, I mean, you go to Rod's house, you cut a hole in Rod's roof, you might get met with some ammunition. You know, so, so, I mean, they just cut a hole, they cut a hole, Rod say, you can knock on the door, but don't be cutting a hole in my roof, you know, but, but the Bible says they couldn't get to the door because of the press, there's a, there's a sermon there, because it says press, like, as in, I'm thinking like, you know, today that would have been the media, <laughs> but they couldn't get to Peter's door because of the press of people that, you know, the throng of people that were just blocked, there was just no entrance where there was no way through with a man on a stretcher. So they went up the back stairs and cut a hole, tore a hole in Peter's roof and dropped the man down and said, Lord, please heal him. The Lord healed the man, walked out of that house with all of his limbs intact. So, so paralysis it wasn't, it was a serious thing. It could bring about that. But I just think that this is just so beautiful that this, this particular centurion is saying, Lord, please come and heal my servant, who, according to Matthew chapter 8, was at the point of death, okay? I'm in verse 4 of St. Luke 7. St. Luke 7, 4 says, And when they came to see Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, that is, he loves Israel, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. That is, he paid for it out of his own pocket. And verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, and this is the key, this is where I'm going to stop, the first part of verse 7. Watch this, everybody. It says, therefore, I did not presume 
to come to you. Stop. That's all I'm going to get to today. I'm not going to get to, but just say the word, or the King James Version said, but just say a word. I'm not going to get to the authority subject, because I thought those two passages are so powerful that they deserve their own Sunday. So I'm just going to spend one Sunday talking about the word, word, because the Greek behind it is just so amazing. The deconstruction of that sentence, just say a word, or just say the word. Rod will tell you about it. Just say a word or the word. I thought it deserved its own Sunday. His whole discussion about how authority works, I think, deserves its own Sunday because there are some lessons there for us to learn. Whenever Jesus says that this is the greatest faith I've seen, I want to take note and find out, okay, I need to deconstruct that. I need to understand the chemistry behind how do you get to that level of faith because I, I, I'm not there. I'm not there. And I want to be there. I want to be where you are, Sister Bacara, that beautiful song, For Your Glory. I want to be where you are, Lord. I want to be in that place where my faith, it doesn't have to be great to the extent that the Lord gives me compliments. I want it to just be able to get me through circumstances and trials and tribulations. I want to have enough faith to make it day to day. I want to have enough faith to make it from Monday to Saturday. Amen. I'm not looking for, you know, heroic, heroic faith. I'm not looking for headline faith. I don't even have to be listed in Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to be able to make it from point A to point B. Lord, help me. Give us this day our daily bread. If I can make it till Monday this time, I'm doing good. Amen. Give me that daily faith, that now faith. Hebrews 11 one says now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I want that type of day-to-day -day faith, amen? So let's just, let's just really deconstruct this for a second, and we won't be before you long. I just want to just cover two quick points about this centurion that I think will help us understand how he got to the great faith. Last week I said, I didn't do a one-word rap today, but had I done a one-word rap, I would have asked you what the key word is for last week, but I didn't do it, so we'll go on. But let me just say this. I think there are five key components, five five key components that gets this guy to the point, let me just turn this down a little bit, that gets this guy to the point of great faith. Okay, here, here they are. Here are the five components, in my, in my humble opinion, that in terms of what gets this guy to this level. Point number one, we talked about it last week, his compassion. God loves people that are compassionate. The word compassion in the Greek means to suffer along with. That means that you can relate to people. You're not just sympathetic. You're not just empathetic. You are there with them. You're going through this with them. Okay? So I'm still a little out. Let me, so so that, that to me is point number one, his compassion. Point number two is actually what we're going to talk about for a second uh, this morning. And that is the... Um, that is the guy's understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, what it, what it means to uh, trouble yourself. He, I think he understood compassion. I think that's part of why his faith was so great. And number two, I think he understood belief. He understood what it meant to be a believer, to trust Jesus. Gloria brought this up this morning uh, in our Sunday school class about, you know, for us to be used by God, does God trust us? Does God need to trust us? Does God trust you? Do you think that God trusts you? Just contemplate that question for a second. How do you think God feels about you? If you could just get uh, sort of an inside look into his thoughts about you. 
in your particular walk? How would he characterize or evaluate your relationship with him? Just you and him. Forget about us. Take us out of the equation. How do you think, what kind of terms, what status do you think that you and the Lord are at? And I think that's a key to understanding this man's faith. And it's a key for us in terms of our growth. I'm not going to be long today because that's why I just wanted to concentrate on one word, maybe two. So please hang with me. This is really important. I feel like this man understood how the Lord worked, where he got this amazing revelation from, who instructed him, who was his mentor, who got this guy from a point A of being a paganistic Roman centurion. And I've give you, given you some background on just the kind of lifestyle these non-commissioned officers, officers lived and who they were. They were, number one, they were very brave. They had killed a lot of people. They were extremely loyal. They were faithful to the Roman government. And they also had a, they took a vow to stay celibate, not to stay celibate, but to stay unmarried until their commission was over. These men joined the army usually as late teens and they had to serve a 20 to 25 year commission. And that was the only time they were able to get married and start a family after they retired from the military. So these guys were essentially put in there to be expendable. The centurions did not fight from the back of the platoon. The centurions fought from the front. They were on the front to the end. So they were right in the heat of the action. They weren't saying, you guys go and get them and let me know if we win. They're in there, they're in there taking people on, and their mortality rate was extremely high as a result. So I'm, I'm saying that to say what kind of guy this is. This is not just, you know, some rosy peach. This is not a hippie. This is not a flower child. This guy is not a tree hugger. This cat is a man's man, a warrior, a, a, a survivor, and he has, he's showing this sort of, this tenderness, this compassion to a slave who is essentially property, chattel, a tool. And he's showing this kind of compassion. I think this guy is remarkable. No wonder the Bible des- describes him as a certain centurion. Because, th- and by the way, this is not a parable. This is a true account. This guy existed. We don't know his name. Most of the people that were great in scripture, we seem not to know their names. And that, that I've talked about that in sermons before. That should be encouraging to us to let us know that, God, you don't have to worry about if we know your name. You don't have to worry about if the plain dealer or the New York Times know your name. You don't have to worry about if you have a blog or a podcast or you're on the Internet or you have a million followers on Twitter. As long as God knows your name. Amen. That's all that's important. As long as God knows who you are. And according to Psalms 39, not only does God know who we are, but he says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We were woven together in, his, in our mother's womb before we were even born. God knew who we were, and he selected us. He elected us. He called, whether, whatever your feelings are about predestination election, it's immaterial. The important, the important thing is, is that God knew you before or at day one, wherever you want to check in at. And that makes us important. It makes us unique. Amen. So I, I look at this and I said, well, where, where did the guy come into this, this, this conversion, this belief? And here's where it comes. The Bible says in Luke 7, 3, that the centurion said that when the centurion heard about Jesus, there it is. There's the conversion. There's the faith. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So first of all, the centurion heard about Jesus, whether he heard about Jesus through other Romans, through the Jews, through reading on his own. He heard about Jesus. Faith comes by hearing. 
not by miracles. Miracles are great. Miracles are wonderful. Signs and wonders are great. But the Lord himself said over in Luke 16, when he was talking in the, uh, the, this, uh, the account of the parable of the Lazarus and the rich man, and when the rich man said, Lord, will you just send, will you just send Abraham, will you just send Lazarus back to witness to my five brothers so that they don't come to this horrible place? You know, tell them not to come here. Tell them to get saved. And the answer was, no, no, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have the word of God. They have the Bible. If they don't believe that, they're certainly not going to believe one coming back from the dead. Isn't that an amazing statement? Not, I mean, what could be more convincing than resurrection? What could be more convincing than a dead man coming to life? I mean, no, the Bible says, I'll tell you what's more convincing than that. The word of God, the word of God trumps a miracle every time, even a miracle of the magnitude of resurrection. The word of God trumps that. You don't get any better than God's word. You can't go any higher up the food chain. You can't get a more reliable witness, a more reliable account. You can't beat the word of God. So why we why we demote it and minimize it and treat it like when all else has failed, like we used to sing this song when I was a kid at church, when you tried everything and everything has failed, try Jesus. We, we look at Jesus as some sort of Hail Mary. We look at the word of God, oh, just pray when you can't do nothing else. When the doctor's can't do it when the lawyers can't do it when no one else can, well throw up a prayer what else do you have to lose that's horrible <laughs> imagine how god feels that we're a last option for him for, for anything he's the last option here he's a master of the universe the physician of physicians the great jehovah rapha the great jehovah jireh the great jehovah sit canoe the great jehovah provider and we make him the last option that's insulting to me, and I'm not even God. <laughs> As his messenger, I'm insulted that we would treat our Lord that way, me included. So the Bible says that he heard about Jesus, and we know Romans 10, 17, that says that faith came. This is why I believe the centurion was a believer. A, he heard about Jesus, and faith comes by hearing. B, he called the Lord, Lord, in verse 6 of Luke 7, he said, Lord, trouble yourself not to come. In other words, Lord, don't make a big fuss. Don't come to me because you're going to get the Jews all upset because Gentiles aren't allowed to go by law, by Levitical law. You're not allowed to, in, in, to, to enter the house of a, of a Jew. It makes you ceremonially unclean. It was Levitically incorrect. And not only that, it was socially, politically incorrect to have a non-Jew in your house. So, Lord, don't get yourself enthralled into this big hoopla. Just say the word. Okay, I don't expect you to come to my house. And I, you know what? Here's, here's what I think I told you guys this a week or so ago. I'm just so impressed by this guy. He never was under the impression. He never wanted Jesus to come to his house. That was never part of his arrangement. He, he, from Jump Street, the Jews, the elders got it wrong. They got it wrong on two accounts. Here's where they got it wrong in Luke 7. A, they got it wrong by saying, Jesus, come to this centurion's house and heal his servant. The centurion never asked them to say that according to scripture. That was never his expect expectations. Number two, if you're taking notes, the centurion didn't expect Jesus to come to his house because he knew what Jesus could do. And he knew that the Lord didn't need to come. That his presence wasn't required for the miracle to go down. Okay. He wasn't expecting that. He never expected that. 
the Jews got that wrong and they got also wrong that the centurion thought that he deserved the healing of his servant based on his benevolence and philanthropy to the Jews in their synagogue. The, 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 the centurion had no such expectations. He had no such presumptions. This was the Jews trying to conjure up a favor from Jesus. The centurion never expected them to repay Jesus to owe him a favor, quote unquote, because he bought their synagogue, had it built out of his own pocket. By the way, I told you that centurions were handsomely paid. They made 10 times as much as a regular enlisted soldier, and they also made money on the side. So they were extremely wealthy. So he could have financed and bankrolled the whole synagogue by himself. However he did it, he did it, and they gave him credit for it. He was not asking for some quid pro quo here. He wasn't asking for a favor. He was asking the Lord to please. He was begging. He was imploring the Lord, not as some, some you know, debt being paid. So the Jews had it wrong, and they characterized it wrong. And I love this part of the account because the centurions made it straight. He sets them straight. I'm going to be done here in a second. So part number one, I believe he was a believer, A, because he heard the word. B, because he said, Lord, and in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, so I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't call the Lord, Lord unless by the Holy Spirit. The Hebrew word there, or actually the Greek word that he, that he used was a word called kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S. The word can be rendered sir, it can be rendered master, it can be rendered uh, idol even, it can be rendered owner, but it can also be rendered Lord, as in Yahweh, Adonai, Yehovah, or Yahshua, Yeshua, and that was the term that the man used, that you are Lord, Master, God in the flesh. Lord, you don't need to come to my house. It was a, it was a, it was a term of deference. It was a term of worship. Remember back in Luke when the thief on the cross, the penitent thief said, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Remember that? And the Lord said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. It's the same word that he used. The conversion took place somewhere on the cross. And so he referenced the Lord as now you are my master. You're not just a rabbi. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a, a prophet or a preacher. You are my Lord, my savior, curios, Lord, master, Yahweh. Don't bother coming to my house. You are God in the flesh. It's not necessary. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, that just touched my heart. It touched my heart, because especially when I, when, when I compare that, when I create a parallel with, with John 11, with Mary and Martha, who felt like, you know, they scolded the Lord. Not, not only didn't you, didn't, you, didn't you heal Lazarus to keep him from dying, you showed up two days late. I, re, re, read the account. Read the account in, read the account in John 11. That was just a, a low-level a low-level verbal beatdown of Jesus. Like, you have a nerve to be showing up here. We sent you a message two days ago that Lazarus was dying. And you come cruising in here now talking about, hey, what's happening? How y'all doing? Everything okay? You know? And Mary and Martha were, were not the least bit happy about it. If you read the account, you'll see what their words were. Both of them said, you know, Lord, had you just gotten here, which is cold for where were you 
this is your friend. You've eaten at our table. You've slept at our home. How could you leave your guy hanging like that while you out on some preaching tour? Whatever you had to say to them could have waited two more days. Lazarus is dying now. But see, there was, here was the problem. The problem was they didn't understand God the way the centurion did. They didn't recognize that he didn't need to be in St. Louis to do a miracle in Toledo. He didn't even need to be on the same continent. <laughs> the centurion understood if this is God in the flesh, if this is him, if this is Yahweh, if this is Jehovah the healer, if this is God the son, it doesn't matter where he's at in the universe, he can get it done. All I have to do is believe him and it be his will and it will be done. I'm just so blown away by that. So I believe that, in my humble opinion, that this guy was a believer. And then here's my last point. I believe that he was a believer because this gr a great verse, I call it the gospel in a verse, Acts 26.20, regardless of what translation you use. Even, even Rosie's translation will tell you, the KJV will tell you that the latter part of verse 20 of Acts chapter 26 says that they should repent this is, this is salvation. This is what conversion means. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And I believe that this centurion did just that. Don't you all believe that, that when we are saved and we are truly saved, that we will act like we're saved? That it won't just be a, a, a word salad. It won't just be a bunch of words and jargon and Christian lingo. But that there will really be a transformation in our lives. That's what I think is important. And I think that this centurion exhibited that type of contrition and that type of compassion and that type of believing. And even to the point of saying that he wasn't worthy, which shows to me amazing humility for a Roman officer who is, who is in the habit of people answering his every command and bowing down his every instruction and giving him quick, quick zippity service for him to defer to this peasant teacher. That's what they refer to Jesus as. This, this, this country preacher who didn't even have, you know, a house to live in, who didn't have a steady contribution of funds that he would defer to him and say, you know, Lord, to use that word, to use that title, to give him that respect, shows such humility. That's, that's a component of faith that makes faith great. You see compassion, you see trust, and you see humility. You put those three together and you have amazing faith. The King James Version says that Jesus marveled at his faith marveled at it that means he was astounded he was astonished he was amazed at a person from a roman gentile background could come to such an amazing astute knowledge of who jesus was and what he could do and how he could do it and where he could do it here's the monday morning moment the monday morning moment is I kind of alluded to it last week. We'll see how many of you remember me saying this statement. The Monday morning moment for today is great faith does not change God's will. It empowers us to agree with God's will. I'll say it again. The Monday morning moment, which I extract from 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says that great faith, this is my Monday morning moment. I'm, I'm sort of putting this in a little 
capsule for us. Great faith does not change God's will. It empowers us to agree with God's will. So when we want to have great faith, we're not looking for God to do what we want him to do. We're looking for God to do what he wants to do and help us get on board with that. Amen. Help us to get on. Lord, help me to agree with you. First John 5, first John 5, 14 and 15 is about us getting on board with him. The confidence that we have is based on the fact that this is what God wants to do anyway. Whether it meets the demands of our request is immaterial. The fact is, is that God wants to do it. And Lord, help me to learn to agree with you. Amen. Just take that home with you. I'm not going to say anything else. Lord, we just thank you for this message and we ask that you be blessed, that we be blessed because we're here and Lord, that you be glorified and that your people are edified and that we will take these words and may they not just become a series of instructions. May it, may not, may it not just become a, a, a mass of information, Lord, but may it become transformative. May it become life-changing. May it apply to our daily walk. Help us to walk these things out. Help us to live these things out. Help them to change Lord, how we approach life, its challenges, its twists and turns. Help your words, Lord, to inform us as to how to respond and react to crises and challenges and, and upsets and, and surprises and, and calamities, Lord. Help these words in your word to give us that strength to stand strong and to resist the enemy and the temptations to throw in the towel and to give up and to despair. Lord, teach us to be strong and faithful and consistent and committed to you and all that we do say and think. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.